Welcome to Food Freedom Radio. I'm Laura Hedlund, a student of permaculture, a person who knows cheap food is not cheap, and someone um, enjoying a low-key Christmas this year. Um, We're taping the show on December 23rd, so it will air Christmas morning, and it's going to be repeated the day after Christmas as well. Um, And today's guest is the founder of Ecological Democracy Network, Ken Patel. Welcome to Food Freedom Radio. Hello, Laura. Good to be here. Yeah, wonderful to have you again. So tell us, remind us a little bit of your background. Basically, grew up here in Minnesota um, and, you know, uh, graduated from Hopkins Eisenhower. I was going to go to college, left college, went out to Los Angeles and um, ran into smog for the first time. And I was stunned by it. Uh, My aspirations were to go into show business back in 79. Mm -hmm. And when I ran into the smog, it changed my direction in life. Um, I didn't know exactly what was happening, but eventually I wandered around, you know, learning about the conditions of the earth and the health of the planet. And it was very disturbing to me. So around 86, I uh, went in and and, uh, applied with Greenpeace and started knocking on doors and, uh, for 11 years, I was generally an all-purpose organizer with Greenpeace, and then I transitioned to the Green Party around 1996 and worked w- with the Green Party for about 12 years, uh, once again, all-purpose organizer, um, and ran for governor four times in the state, was on the ballot, uh, and then, then in, in 2008, I uh, left the Green Party and, and started the Ecology Democracy Network. And, uh, and that has been my work ever since, uh, which is basically seeking to reverse ecological overshoot on Earth, uh, and move to structural change in the economy, uh, who we pick as our representation and who influences our governance. So, um, yeah, and that's so you, in a nutshell where we are today. Right. And so you recently spoke out on reversing ecocide. So tell us a little yes. bit about what you were saying in terms of that. Well, basically, what's, since I've been involved in working on all these issues, I mean, back in the uh, mid-80s, this discussion was taking place in different shapes and forms. Um, and... Uh, the uh, basic issue was that we were, uh, you know, overfishing, for example, massive drift nets out in the ocean, uh, you know, 30 miles long, 30 feet deep, just scraping the oceans, basically, of whatever it catches. Um, and this was deteriorating the biodiversity of our ocean on a huge scale. This is a form of ecocide. Uh, mass, you know, deterioration of vital ecosystems on Earth. Uh, issues around adding more CO2 into the atmosphere. We knocked on doors in the late uh, 80s uh, pertaining to what's now, you know, global warming or climate change, however you want to use whatever language you want to use, um, purposely, knowingly adding warming gases to the atmosphere uh, leads to mass scale ecocide, meaning that we are directly attacking basically our host, our habitat on a, on a large scale. 
Uh, and this, we could go on and on and on about ecocide in relationship to what you work on, Laura, which is massive, you know, industrial agriculture, uh, loss of biodiversity, uh, deterioration of topsoil, groundwater. So the goal is to reverse this trend of overusing habitat earth on a large scale. And uh, there is a movement on Earth right now. One of the there are many ingredients to this discussion. So I'm not saying there is one answer to it all. But one of the movements on Earth is to um, end ecocide, is to add into the International Criminal Court uh, one more crime, which would be ecocide, crimes wow. against the Earth. And basically, um, that's been that was written up this last summer by a team of lawyers around the world. Um, and, you know, what it does is basically says nature, habitats, the, that which was here before humans arrived, the, the earth and all the biodiversity and non-humans have a right to exist in and of themselves, uh, with or without humans involved. You know, so Ken, we have a, we have so much we're going to talk about in this hour. We want to do a deep dive and really what's the economy for, what we're living for and what's happening in our life, especially this is, um, Christmas weekend is kind of a sacred time. How do we walk up to our sacred activism? And uh, we want to dedicate this show to someone who is a, a frequent guest on, um, Food Freedom Radio, uh, Pat Kerrigan. Um, and so, and you knew Pat very well. Yeah. Well, he was a good friend and, you know, I mean, Listen, many people knew Pat because he was so gregarious and he was so outgoing and he was so passionate about healing our relationship to the planet. And he was such a successful grassroots organizer. Um, so, yeah, Pat was a special man. Yeah, and so I'm going to take a, a moment just to read from his obituary. Um, so after college, he worked in hunger relief and climate activism. He loved his work with the Emergency Food Shelf Network, Veep, Wedge, Linden Hills Co-op, Youth Farm, and the Organic Consumers Association. His colleagues described him as a dear friend, mentor, ally, and a rock in the regenerative egg community. Paul Pat was a walking encyclopedia for local, organic, and hopeful farming news. He spent his life building bridges for good health health and resiliency for Mother Earth, his dedication, spirit, and deep passion will have a lasting effect on the survival of our planet, its creatures, and the farmers who he so revered. The seeds he planted will bear fruit for years to come. Here, here. Here, here. So I'm going to play a clip from him because his voice. And um, so we're just going to play a clip from the last time the two of you were on Food Freedom Radio. And so, um, you know, luckily we have uh, Mother Nature, you know, talking about all this uh, technology and devices. Mother Nature is still uh, our best teacher if we get out and um, and uh, just, you know, take in how the natural world works, how regeneration is an inherent part of life. Uh, if it's not suppressed with, uh, say, for the soil with chemical fertilizers, herbicides, pesticides, which kill um, microorganisms, earthworms, and soil health. You know, M Mother Nature's been figuring it out for hundreds of millions of years. The miracle of photosynthesis is, I, is always just, uh, uh, the more I'm learning about soil health, nutrient exchange, water, nutrient cycling, um, the more amazed I am. And so... Uh, we've got a, a great, great teacher in Mother Earth, 
And um, and so one of the things I'm so excited about the GPI is integrating in the environmental impact um, of our extra, exploitive, extractive, industrial uh, 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 food uh, and other types of production practices. Um, so, yeah, isn't that a beautiful, just a radiant voice? And that, that voice yeah. of sacred activism is so much what we're longing for right now. Yes, yes. Oh, and his voice just rings in my head all the time. He just had that beautiful sound. And I remember someone was saying, "Oh, Pat, Pat, is that the person with the shiny eyes <laughs> and the shiny cheeks and the shiny cheeks, and the, the shininess and the shiny face?" And you know, when we're dealing with so many incredibly dark topics, I mean, in the, the we can go there, and I think I think we need to go there, but. That sacred activism coming from a ground place that is energetic, even in spite of the the dark the dark times. Um, yeah, it sort of needed fuel. Well, you know, we're all an expression of this planet. You know, Pat was an expression of the planet, and he was an expression of a healing. You know, like part of the planetary immune system, right? To heal our relationship to this planet. Pat L kind of followed his calling, and and he was very good at it, and offered very important work on this planet while he was here. And that um, that optimism and grit. I mean, uh, uh, Hubert Humphrey, um, icon in Minnesota, he was also described as that happy warrior. And uh, so, yeah, you know, yeah. so um, in what issues did you work uh, with Pat on? Well, we worked on you know back in the eighties, early nineties, was trade issues. We connected through the wedge. Um, we worked on persistent toxic poison issues around pesticides and herbicides because uh, he was involved in uh, healthy food systems back then. Um, and then in the more recent past, I connected with him through Regeneration Midwest. And uh, and then, of course, he was all we were just kind of in touch around the genuine progress indicator. And um, so, you know, we we connected. We, we were really close in the late 80s, early 90s. We kind of lost track of each other for a while, and then more recently, uh, we got in touch the last eight eight years or so, ten years. So um, let's give a brief preview, if someone hasn't heard, of the General Progress Indicator. What does that mean? The Genuine Progress Indicator is an alternative composite economic measurement to the gross domestic product. So it's a, an alternative way to measure the macroeconomic situation we're in, because the GDP is the dominant economic signal on Earth right now. And so, uh, and there were numerous deficiencies in the GDP that were identified from the very beginning when it was devised in around 1934. And so over time, these critiques built up, and eventually in 1995, the genuine progress indicator emerged as an alternative economic measurement to the gross domestic product in Minnesota, uh, there was a roundtable, for example, in the late 90s, um, and, and they came up with a report called Smart Signal. And in that report, uh, the, through the Minnesota Department of Planning, they recommended Minnesota move away from using basically the gross domestic product or gross state product, which are synonymous. So Ken Patel with Ecological Democracy Network. Um, we're going to take a break, and we're come back. We're going to talk more about... Um, uh, how we measure the economy, what the economy is for. And then we're also going to talk a little bit about um, Ebenezer Scrooge and the Christmas Carol. 
Welcome back to Food Freedom Radio. I'm Laura Hedlund, and joining me by phone is um, the founder of the Ecological, De- Ecological Democracy Network, Ken Patel. And um, since the show is airing on Christmas morning, I want to put the conversation that we're having, and basically we're talking about what is the economy for? I want to put that in the context of A Christmas Carol. And I watched the movie again last night. That's one of my little Christmas traditions is to watch uh, A Christmas Carol movie. Um, Ken, have you ever watched or read A Christmas Carol? You know what? I have to play. I, I say I am claiming ignorance. <laughs> I am not a Christmas Carol uh, student. Oh, I, yeah. So, um, but and so, a Christmas Carol. Um, it's uh, it's full title. I actually uh, a Christmas Carol in prose, being a ghost story of Christmas, commonly known as a Christmas Carol. It's a novelette by uh, Charles Dickens and was first published in 1843. So. And I think I'm not giving away the plot, um, but uh, Ebenezer Scrooge, he's visited by ghost of his former business partner, Jacob Marley, and the spirits of Christmas past, present, and yet to come. And after their visits, so after facing his past, opening up to his trauma, and and being aware of the present situation and the consequences on the future, the potential future from the present situation, after those visits – uh, Scrooge is transformed into a kinder and gentler man. And so one of the big premises that I have is that our entire economy works as if, as if it's operated by Ebenezer Scrooge before his transformation. Would you agree mm-hmm. with that, Ken? Uh, yeah. I mean, we're definitely, yeah, I would agree with that. So here's a, here's one of the examples that's kind of infuriating to me because I hear people complaining about high natural gas costs right now. So in Texas, there was a major storm. It killed more than 100 people and left 4.5 million people without power. And at the same time, demand for heat pushed wholesale market costs to 400 times the usual amount and gas prices to record highs forcing um, utilities and customers to play the, pay for these crazy bills, right? Like they're paying thousands of dollars for a few days of, of gas. It was just crazy. So a handful of firms reached uh, – they're getting billions of dollars in extra process, profits. And there's a Reuters article from May 6 on 2021. So how crazy is that, huh? Well, you know, once again, it's uh, the way the system is set up, you know, when there's shock to the system – there are people waiting that are, can take advantage of it. It's kind of like uh, there's war profiteering and then there's energy, you know, shock profit, profiteering. And so, I mean, in, in, in Ebenezer Scrooge, you know, Christmas Carol, with the beginning and before his visits, uh, he can raise the price of grain. And everyone's saying, hey, you're going to make people starve by raising the price of grain. He says, this is business. I can raise the price of grain and who cares of the consequences of it? Right. So, yeah, I mean, yeah. So let's talk more about these structures because that's – I think so often the structures are almost hidden and we don't see them or we think – we don't think about them and we just feel like we're trapped in them and they're, they're invisible but they're so important in our everyday lives. They affect so much of what we're experiencing. Right, right. So, you know, we're talking about – I mean the the one that, you know, in the economic realm of discussion would be – the existing structure we were born into, with the, which is basically a growth imperative, an economy that is an open-ended economic system on a finite biosphere. That's the type of economic system we have right now. Um, and 
as everyone knows, you can't infinitely grow on a finite biosphere. But we're trying. <laughs> and so that's why the existing economic structure is very dangerous. Um, and it, as, as I mentioned before, the gross domestic product is one of those drivers of a growth imperative. If, if we don't if we go two negative quarters of GDP, it's a benchmark for a recession in the economy. And recession generally is code for austerity, and code for austerity is generally giving from those that have the least to those that have the most. So the, the existing system, all the incentives are to keep growing right now on a macro scale, on a large scale. And we're, that's, you know, obviously can't continue because we have limited resources. So that is one of the dangers of the existing economic structure. And ultimately what we're trying to do with the ecology democracy network and so on is move to an ecology-based or a steady state economy where we grow and decompose based upon the health of our habitat. Because right now the way the economy works, it's devoid of recognizing the biosphere or the habitat. But we're, you know, we're a subspecies in a larger biosphere. What we do to the larger biosphere affects all subspecies. And so we need to change our economic structure to get in balance with the habitat. And that's one of the main goals that we would talk about. So uh, update us on the uh, legislation of the um, uh, General Pro- uh, Progress Indicator. There is a bill in the Minnesota um, House and, and Senate, and there's also uh, one in uh, the Cong- U.S. Congress right now. Correct. So there's one, uh, Cong- uh, Representative, uh, Schultz out of Duluth is the chief author in the House, and Senator Fate is the chief author in the Senate here in Minnesota. And then Congresswoman Elon Omar introduced House File 4894, or House Resolution 4894, the Genuine Progress Indicator Act of 2021. Um, and there's, there's some differences between the two bills. Um, that are important, but uh, the one I've been most focused on now is the one on the federal level. And um, globally, um, tell us about uh, some of the activity on the global level around this. Well, there's a variety of movements globally to deal with, uh, you know, deal with this problem we're facing on how we measure the economy. Um, and so there is, you know, movements like, for example, a woman named Kate Raworth uh, came up with a book called Donut Economics where it's similar to the discussion I just mentioned around uh, living within the limits of the biosphere and so on. Uh, there's also a discussion in Europe called the circular economy. And there are movements around the world that are working towards uh, what's known as beyond GDP by 2030. So that is, and within that, so there's a lot of this type of uh, trying to refigure how we measure an economy, how we coalesce the nation states on the planet, because right now 200 nation states calculate their economies, at least 200, calculate their economies using the gross domestic product. So this is, you know, we've got to deal with this ultimately on a global level. And so one of the problems uh, with the whole um, GMP is we're almost – we're on a treadmill of, of, of narratives. We're, we're a treadmill of narratives which aren't really present to ecocide, our, our, our reality. Right, right, because we're being told contradictory things. We're being told we need to grow, 
but we are running out of habitat. Because remember, uh, Laura, a hundred years ago, humans occupied about 15% of the Earth's surface. We now occupy about 80% of the Earth's surface. Wow. And about 87% of the ocean ecology in some way, shape, or form, either fishing, dead zones, plastics, you know, garbage, whatever form or shape it's taking. Um, and so... Uh, and this is out of a report that came out in Nature magazine oh, about a year and a half ago. So, and this is accelerating because once again, the message by the dominant economic signals, especially in the West, the U.S., Western European countries, China, Russia, uh, Japan, Brazil. Ken, Ken we're going to continue this conversation. We're taking a break. You're listening to Food Freedom Radio on AM 950, the Progressive Voice of Minnesota. Rain into a paper cup They slither wildly As they slip away Across the universe Pools of sorrow Waves of joy Welcome back to Food Freedom Radio. I'm Laura Hedlund, and joining me by phone is the uh, is Ken Patel with the Ecological Democracy uh, Network. And in the last segment, I was telling the story of A Christmas Carol because the show is going to be airing on Christmas Day and the day after. Um, and so, of course, A Christmas Carol is the classic Dickens novel from 1843 and uh, with Ebenezer Scrooge. And one of the things I think is that our entire economic structures – act like Ebenezer Scrooge acted before his transformation. So before he was aware of the past, the present, and the impact of our present decisions on the future. And and so also before we went on break, you were saying these statistics that I actually hadn't heard before. So only 100 years ago, if we were go to visit, 85% of the planet, I mean, repeat those statistics about our, our impact Basically, on the human, Yeah, humans occupied about 15% of the Earth's surface, and now that's close to 80% right now. And about 50% of the Earth's surface is just agriculture alone. So we're talking, you know, corn, soybean, you know, and all the uh, relationships re- uh, related to agriculture's expansion. And so... You know, we can't keep doing it. We're limited. I mean, and so there are these alternatives that we're offering and uh, the genuine progress indicator and, you know, donut economics. And also there's also the gross national happiness index, uh, which came out of Bhutan. Um, so there are alternatives out there are starting to come more and more to the surface because we're under incredible pressure on this planet. We are, and I know last week I had um, a really hopeful show with the future of food um, dot org, and they've done things like um, work in areas where um, elephants are in decline, and they've gone into communities and actually support supported agroecology ecology approaches to food, and they're finding that they're raising the happiness and they're raising the economic and well being overall well being of of people um, with without the industrial approach to agriculture. So. It it was this industrial r- approach to agriculture that has been so devastating. Yeah, and the thing is, is there are so many beautiful models, samples, and examples, and passionate people exploring new ways to live in a resilient way on planet Earth, in a restorative, regenerative way on Earth, all of which are essential, but unfortunately, none of it's meeting the scale of the problem we're facing today, and that is the key. We need to meet scale quickly. 
on this planet. And that's what the genuine progress indicator does. It matches the gross domestic product based upon the scale of its reach. And so how do we be present to everything that's happening? And again, I'm going to go with Ebenezer Scrooge when he actually had a face in the present moment, what was going on in his community. And if we, you know, um, many um, scientists say that we are in the beginning of the sixth mass extinction on the planet. Right, exactly. And then that's, you know, that is, um, you know, just in the last 50 years, 40 years, we've lost 50% of the world's wildlife. So, I mean, the acceleration rate of activity, and we've just marginalized most all of the wildlife on Earth now for human activity. Um, and so the extinctions, in certain respects, we, we've wiped out a lot of species we never knew existed uh, in the process of growing a lot of our activity on Earth. And I want to get into this concept, this word you just used, marginalized life. And um, so I reached out to you after a listener had reached out to me and said, I have to get uh, Derek Jensen on. Um, and Derek Jensen wrote a book called Bright Green Lies. Um, and Derek and I talked. He was happy to come on, but we just couldn't make the time work. But I understand that you've also are very familiar with his work. And so talk to me a little bit about, because I haven't read the book myself, um, Bright Green Lies. But talk a little bit about that. Well, basically, uh, Derek Jensen has written prolifically for many years. Uh, uh, one of the books that changed me was Endgame, Volume 1 and Volume 2, uh, which came out about 2006, 2007. But there are many other books and, and reports. And he's part of kind of what would be considered more of a deep ecology movement um, in our society. And what Derek Jensen does is he articulates the fact that there is no possible way in general that we can replace our, our energy systems, for example, with renewable energy right now. It's not physically possible because the existing energy and the existing infrastructure and, and, and so on that we built up, especially in the West and especially in the U.S., is built on ancient sunlight, fossil fuel. So we took millions of years of energy and in the last 150 years, we really pumped ourselves up. And there is no way to maintain that level of energy activity in our society and manufacturing products and so on at that level um, and re keep it going with renewable energy. It's not physically possible. And to do so, we would need to extract massive amounts of our habitat to just keep up with the rate of growth and, and energy dependency. So what he does is he articulates what really is the whole cost of transitioning to a renewable energy system. Um, and that's a lot of what Bright Green Lies is about, is basically internalizing external costs into the renewable energy invention that we're trying to go into right now. And it physically can't happen. We don't have enough planet left basically. And we're going to create great damage for what other non-humans still exist on Earth. And so he goes into this in depth with uh, his fellow authors, uh, Lear Keith and Max Wilbert. And, you know, one of the things that the uh, general progress indicators, I mean, this idea of external cost mm -hmm. Is, 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 I mean, I'm just going to sigh it out because um, the structures of the economic systems we've, we've lived under in the last 100 years, just they don't take into account um, 
the real cost of um, our activities. Exactly. So, you know, people go get a gallon of gasoline. The cost of CO2 is not in the bottom line of that gallon of gasoline. We don't, it's basically been pawned off on the future. Uh, the cost of emphysema, asthma, bronchitis, cancer is not in the bottom line of that gallon of gasoline. Um, and so what this measure starts to do, the genuine progress indicator, it starts to take a gross number, the gross domestic product, and turn it into a net number where we start to internalize external costs. And basically what we're doing is moving from a single-entry bookkeeping to double-entry bookkeeping with the uh, genuine progress indicator. So we now show more accurately what are the credits, what are the debits or costs in our economy. And so that could apply to many other examples as well. I mean, uh, nuclear. We, we're basically, we've got tens of thousands of years of waste. No one knows what to do with. It's not on any spreadsheet. It's basically been pawned off onto the future, and what the genuine progress indicator would do would start to internalize what's the real cost of handling nuclear materials, especially like in civilian nuclear reactors. So, I mean, these this idea of the um, uh, GPI is the GPI instead of a GNP, but it's actually very well right. vetted. I mean, there's a lot of people um, looking at this from complex levels. Can you? Yes. Yeah, and the, and the genuine progress indicator is a social welfare indicator. So it's not a sustainability indicator. It's weak sustainability, meaning that it takes into account the health of societies as well. Um, and so what's happened over time since 1995, about 20, over 20 states in the United States have done statewide genuine progress indicators, and four states pass it into law since 2010 and learn learn how to use it, try to exercise with it. Uh, and then uh, internationally, over 30 nation states have done national genuine progress indicators. And it's constantly, and there's about eight Southeast Asian countries, I believe, who just finished up doing genuine progress indicators. So it's being tested all over the world, being, you know, improved upon, challenged, trying to improve because, Everyone on Earth who understands the risks of the way we're measuring now using GDP uh, really feels an urgency now to start moving towards this uh, genuine progress indicator and these types of measurements. I'm not saying the GPI is going to be the end-all or be-all, but it is considered the most scientifically vetted alternative to the GDP on Earth right now. And so in these real-world examples, do you have any um, other narratives or other stories that come to mind about how beneficial it has been to um, look outside of just um, uh, GNP to um, our overall progressive progress? Yeah, it has not been used in a visceral enough way at this point. But like in Maryland, they would use it to uh, measure the health of um, uh the Chesapeake Bay, for example. So uh, they would use the genuine progress indicator as a guide uh, on water quality and so on. Um, and then also they would use it, like in Baltimore, to deal with any economic inequality as well. Because, for example, the gross domestic product does not care about allocation of resources. You know, one person in Hennepin County could gain all the benefits of productivity and the GDP could improve. 
because it just doesn't care about allocation. In the genuine progress indicator, it uses marginal utility, basically saying that $1,000 going to somebody who makes $40,000 a year has a different value than $1,000 going to somebody who makes a million dollars a year. So where the GDP doesn't care about income inequality, the genuine progress indicator does. And this application was used to do a report, for example, for the city of Baltimore. Um, and so that's just another example of, of the you know, difference between the two measurements. And uh, they remind me, I, I don't have the statistics, but it's really funny if you start looking at average wages versus medium wages and average net worth versus medium net worth. It really spots, um, uh, 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 puts a spotlight on the incredible inequities we have in our um, culture right now. Incredible. I mean, the, 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 this, this is one of the high risk factors. Not only is it the way we're measuring the economy using GDP creating ecological extremes, but in creating these economic extremes and social extremes, very dangerous, very dangerous right now. And at the core of uh, of a lot of this um, disconnect um, is a disconnect from nature. And that's something also that Derek Jensen writes about. And, and you talk about yeah. it in terms of authors on language. Exactly. I mean, once again, he speaks in, in more of a – what would be an indigenous kind of consciousness, which is that we are interconnected with the non-human world. Our health, our strength is derived from the non-human world. And, and, and so that is really key, is that we sympathize in our language and in our measurements and so on. Uh, we integrate our health with the health of those that are, are non-human. So the health of, you know, Groundwater, topsoil, habitats, diversity of you know tree types. So, yeah, Ken Patel, um, and we're going to take yeah. another break. We'll be right back. And so, you were, you and Pat were on the show in March. And so, to prepare for this show, I listened to that show we did a year ago and or two years ago. And someone said, "We don't need white allies. We need white relatives." And so, how do we re-enter the garden that maybe we never really even left? And um, you're listening to Food Freedom Radio. We're going to take a break, and we'll be back with Ken Patel. Welcome back to Food Freedom Radio. I'm Laura Hedlund, and we've been having a fun conversation with Ken Baltel uh, this um, holiday weekend. And uh, when we left, we were talking about leaving the garden and um, and a little bit of Derek Jensen's uh, work with uh, uh, Big Green Lies. Do you want to comment on that, Ken? Well, pertaining to leaving the garden? Yeah, well, and it, the one thing that uh, you know, someone told me, we don't need white allies, we need white relatives. And how we uh, how we have um, we have almost a noun culture, and so it's person, place, or thing. So humans are people, and our cats and dogs and trees are things. (laughs) Right. Yeah. You know. And basically, I mean, the thing is, is that we are, like I say, the the idea of us being relatives is very seems fairly maybe to you and I. It seems to be a simple discussion because we're all sharing this planet with all of history. We're all breathing the same air. We're all drinking the same water with all the living and dying creatures on Earth. Uh, so we live in this growth and decomposition balance. And so inherently, we are all part of this indigenous life cycle called planet Earth or Mother Earth. 
And so in that respect, we can't remove ourselves, even if we think we're separate. We're never separate. <laughs> we're always connected. We're always interconnected with all the living and dying things that go on on this planet. And we're going to be here for such a short period of time. But, you know, we're going to be still part of the planet as we decompose in our gases and our liquids and our solids back into the earth to regenerate and to restore you know, life back into, in, into the, into the planet. So there is always this relationship, this interconnectedness, this symbiosis, symbiosis that's going on, whether we like it or not, it's whether happening. We, whether we like it or not. And, and get back to the Ebenezer Scrooge, which also had a happy ending. Um, but as he became aware of the present and the past and was able to embrace that, um, he also he improves in that. I mean, his life improves, and in, yeah. in the way he's able to um, affect the world around him is glorious. Right. Well, I think that part of it is just resigning control, basically saying I can't control everything. Right. I can't. It's exhausting to try to control everything. Right. Yeah. It's kind it of like is. exhausting the earth by putting building all these dams we built a hundred for the last hundred plus years. Right. We tried to control the river systems. We tried to control everything. And now we're finding out that it's done incredible damage. It's costing us huge. And we're now starting to see a movement to pull out the dam. So we stop trying to control the river systems of Earth and we start to try to let the systems breathe and be themselves. And that reduces a lot of stress on us and it it creates incredible abundance for us to let these rivers breathe. Um, and allow the salmon to flourish and the variety of species that were deteriorated by dams now come back to life. And we see biodiversity, and that biodiversity is our health and our strength because we're all interconnected with that. Beautiful. And we saw this with the bald eagles. I mean, the bald eagles were on, on the there verge of go. extinction, and people woke up, and and now um, I see a lot of bald eagles. It's a wonderful experience, and so I don't I don't know if this is going to make sense, but I caught myself really laughing at this sentence: Rudolf Steiner and Daniel Canahan walk into a bar. Now, both of these people have very complex thinking, and I've not studied them enough to reduce it. But I think I can talk about them walking into a bar together. Now, Rudolf <laughs> – I mean, I do. I think I can. You know, Rudolf Steiner was, was like a father of biodynamic farming. And Kannerman, yep. um, who uh, won a, a Nobel Prize in Economic Sciences in 2002, and then he wrote this book, Think Fast, Think Slow. And so when I thought Steiner and Kahneman walk into a bar, I mean – how do I embrace the complexity of life with that system one thinking, that super fast emotional brain that's almost unconscious? How do I how do I how do I do that? Now does that does that make sense to you? Kind of. I mean, it's tough. I mean It is tough. It, it you know, I think that part of it is just one, I think the most important thing is that people try try to understand that we need to connect with other people to help us understand a lot of the condition we're in. I don't, I think part of it is that we can work somewhat in isolation, but ultimately we need some sort of collective relationship with other people and other living things and habitats we depend on to have a fuller understanding of where we are right now. And so I think some of it's complex and I think some of it is rather simple, you know, if it comes down to personal health, diet, physical fitness, tapping into our senses, 
being alive. All of these things are part of our relationship to the planet and our, our awareness we have with the planet we live on. And so I think, uh, you know, and like I say earlier, we're an expression of the planet. And part of our response is going to be kind of like an immune response to heal our relationship to the planet. And so we need to be prepared for that and allow that to emerge as well. But it's very hard in the society, especially in the United States, where we're, I, I was born and, and we live in a very intense commercial bubble very intense techno bubble. It's hard to reconnect to the non-human world on a daily basis. And so that is really a tough nut to crack right now. Yeah, it's not. Um, one of the people on the Future Food um, site, I, I just love that she said this. It's not us and them. It's us and us in the future. And so what I'm feeling is like there's just so much reactivity with each other. And, and so how do we bring in and if you're a Christian, how do you bring in that Christmas spirit? I mean, this is this is you know uh, this is airing on Christmas weekend. How do we how do we have that activism come from a a place of um, calmness and optimism and also grit and reality at the same time? Well, I think it comes to thankfulness. I think it comes to the idea that we recognize the beauty and the love and the care and the compassion that's going on all the time all around us. And so part of that, it gives us a sense of emboldenment and strength uh, because it's easy, like you mentioned, to be re- reactionary all the time. And in reality, sometimes you just need to be observant of all the, the positive things, you know, not the positive things, but the things that help us heal our relationship to the earth. Doesn't mean it's going to be easy. There are times where there's time to resist. And there's times for time to be open and uh, to uh, the feelings and the senses that guide us. And so I don't know if it's an easy answer to your question, but I do think that this is a time for contemplation and, uh, and absorbing kind of what, kind of reflecting what did I do this last year and how can I, you know, learn from that and allow myself to become the person I want to become. That's, the gist of a lot of this time of year is reflection. Yeah, it is the gist. And, and how do I help create the world I want my children and grandchildren to live in? And that is about right. genuine progress. Not ge- That's right. That's genuine right. progress. So, uh, Ken, if people wanted to check out and learn more, um, you got a Zoom call coming up. And how do, they, uh, how do they learn about you? Go to the website, ecologydemocracynetwork.org. Uh, ecologydemocracynetwork.org or they can call me at 612-387-0601 612-387-0601 Well, thank you so much, Ken, for joining us and uh, thank you for listening and have an awesome um, holiday weekend here.